Okay, guys, we're going to start number 11, relating to others. Um, you'll find it in your um, books on page 89. That's where we're starting. Let me start with the story. There were two women talking to each other. The first said, my husband is like Moses. That man can wander about in the wilderness for 40 years and never once ask for directions. And uh, the second woman <laughs> replied, yeah, rings a few bells. Um, well, my husband is like God, seldom seen, and whenever he does anything, it's a miracle. Uh, but anyway, enough male bashing. Uh, in Matthew 22, Jesus said this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So there you have it. What are we to do when we're relating to one another? We're to love. Love as we love ourselves, in fact. That's a kind of love that we can't do. Um, we can't love the unlovable, can we? Not in ourselves. Um, but now, if we've taken hold of our freedom in Christ, we can find that we're free to relate to others as God intended us to. So it's just as knowing who we are in Christ acts as like the foundation for our Christian life, for our Christian growth and maturity, it also forms the very same foundation for the way we relate to other people. Got a few examples, three Bible verses listed out for you. Listen to them. We love because he first loved us. We give freely because we have received freely. We are merciful because he has been merciful to us. So we forgive as a, in the same way that Jesus has forgiven us. If we've experienced those things, then we find freedom to be able to be the ones that give it out. We can't do any of that, of course, unless we have fully understood the grace that God has for us. It's a big theme of ours as a church and as a kind of church community, kind of wider than ourselves as well. Grace. What is grace? Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. It's undeserved favour that we show to others. And it can't be earned. When we really understand that that's how God deals with us, something strange begins to happen. We discover that actually it really is more blessed to give than it is to receive, as it would suggest in Acts 20.35. And we find that actually we want to give away all that we have received for ourselves to others. Someone caught in a vicious argument inevitably starts attacking the other person's character. You're selfish, they might say, while they start looking at their own needs. You never help me, for example. Nobody can have a good relationship with that kind of approach because it is the exact opposite, in fact, of how God says our relationships should be. Here's a couple of Bible verses, a stimulus. Romans 14.4, it says this. You... Um, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So there you go. Someone else's character is not our concern. It's between them and God alone. We're not to judge. Each person is responsible before God for their own character. But there's another Bible verse, Philippians 2, 3-5, it says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So there we are. We do, however, have responsibilities in meeting the needs of other people. So there we go. We've got two clear responsibilities. We have a responsibility to our own character, and not anybody else's, and we have the responsibility to meet the needs of other people. And if you can imagine what life would be like if we all did that, to become, uh, to be responsible for becoming like Christ in character and being committed to meeting other people's needs around us, then we would reach heaven on earth. But why do we fail, therefore, to meet up, uh, to, to live up, rather, to this ideal? Uh, page 89. Well, what we find is we're often very aware of the character flaws in other people, but we seem to be quite blind to our own. Much of this has got to do with um, the condition of our relationship with God. As you know, human, since the fall, way back in Genesis, has ever seen God in his fullness, ever fully seen God. Many people have experienced quite unusual expressions and manifestations of God's presence, but not fully. One day, though, we're told, we will. We will see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2. But a couple of examples we've seen quite a lot of God's fullness are in the Bible. Isaiah, for example, saw the Lord seated on a throne, and as a result, this is what he cried out. Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. When he saw God in his fullness, he suddenly became very aware of his own sin. Peter, one of the disciples, who'd been fishing all night without any success, and then Jesus said to him, put out into the deep water, then let down your nets. Peter obeyed and he started pulling up fish after fish after fish. And what do we find? Suddenly he realised how special Jesus was and he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. So when we see God for who he is, we become aware of our own sin, not other people's. However, if we find that we're kind of lukewarm in our faith, neither kind of in or out really with God, we see the opposite. And when other people don't match our expectations, we want to point them out to them uh, for what they're doing wrong. But of course, in every relationship, there are responsibilities and there are rights. We have both of those things. But how do we emphasise them? Let's get, uh, sort of earth this in a few examples. In marriage, for example, the Bible tells wives to submit to their husbands. Now, a husband might focus that on his right, but a husband also has an, uh, an amazing responsibility to love his wife. Not just that, but to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And we know what that meant for him. A wife, on the other hand, she might nag her husband because she has a right to expect him to be the spiritual head of the household. That is a biblical expectation. That is true. But she's also been given the responsibility to love and respect her husband. And when you stand before Christ on Judgment Day, will he emphasise your rights? Will he say to you, did they give you everything that they should have done? Or will he emphasise your responsibilities. I think I know which round it will be. Satan, on the other hand, will always, always tempt us to focus on our rights, which is likely to lead us to a destruction in that, in that relationship. 
So, for example, do parents have the right to expect children to be obedient? Well, yes, but do they also have the responsibility of bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord and to lovingly discipline them when they're disobedient? Well, yes, they do. Does a member of a local church, as another example, have the right to criticise other people? Or, in fact, do they have a responsibility to submit to those in authority and relate to one another with the same love and the same acceptance that they've received from Christ? You see, being part of a local church is an amazing and incredible privilege, but it also comes with an awesome responsibility to behave as God's children and to love God and also to love others. So emphasising rights over responsibilities will sow the seed of destruction in any relationship. Now everyone's got rights. We, we have the right to be loved. We have the right to be accepted, irrespective of our background, our ethnicity, where we're from, our you know, history. But we must not abdicate our personal responsibility by demanding our rights. Learning not to have great expectations of other people, <coughs> excuse me, but to simply... Focus on doing my part, actually find, takes a lot of stress out of relationships. But of course, uh, others often do go out of their way. They do meet our needs. And when that happens, because we weren't kind of having really high expectations, it's a wonderful bonus. It kind of works like that. So learning not to focus constantly on the failings of others and choosing to think well of them is a lot easier in the long run, I'd suggest. And... It's better than feeling let down and badly treated. So a question is posed at the bottom of page 90 is, well, what do we do then when other people do things that are wrong? And we might have talked about that a little bit in our discussion. Maybe you did, ladies, early as well. Do we just ignore it? Or should we try and persuade them of their sin? Well, it's important first to realise that for everybody, it's very difficult, this will be common for all of us, to own up to our own sin. We can often see the issues in someone else's life much more clearly than they can. But that's not our responsibility. We're not their conscience. Um, we're not the one to point out their sin. That's the Holy Spirit's role. We see that in John 16, 8. He is already convicting them. That's what he does, the Holy Spirit. So there's already an internal battle going on in that other person. And if we suddenly intervene, then we become the focus for the struggle that was supposed to be with God. And we're not up to it, but God is. So let's leave God to that. Peter wrote this in chapter 4, verse 8 of his first letter. Above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's got to be our first objective with each other, covering over. Now, I've, I've realised that at times I can unintentionally offend people. That's going to happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, then hallelujah. But I can almost guarantee I probably will at some point. Uh, I trust it will be unintentionally uh, offend people. It just happens when we kind of deal with each other, when we're um, in relationships. Now, what I've decided to do, though, is not take offence myself when others appear to offend me. Because it does happen both way around, doesn't it? And I've learned, and I'm continuing to learn, to give people the benefit of the doubt due to think well of them. Because what we find is that conflict is just part of life. But the key really is how we handle it. That's what makes the big difference. So another question, are there occasions when I should confront another Christian? 
Well, let me give you two Bible verses. Firstly, Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. But on the other hand, Paul says this in Galatians 6, 1. When he talks about um, discipline, Christ, uh, disciplining Christians who do wrong. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Gently. So how can we reconcile these two things, these two facts, that we're not to judge, we're told by Jesus, but we are to carry out discipline within church, within Christian family? Well, the key to understanding this, again, is understanding the difference between these two words, judgment and discipline. They're not the same thing. See, judgment is always related to character, somebody's character, where discipline always corresponds with somebody's behaviour. Discipline has to be based on something we've seen or heard. If we personally witnessed another Christian sinning against us, then the Bible does instruct us we can go and confront that person alone for the purpose of winning them back. Not just to condemn them, or not at all to condemn them, but to win them back, to restore them. But if they don't repent, then what we're to do is we take along two or three other witnesses who saw with their own eyes, not by hearsay, or with their own ears, that same a sin. So that a few of you can go together and agree, look, this is what's happened. Try and win them back. And if they still don't listen to that, and this is all in Matthew 18, by the way, 15 to 17, what we're to do is then tell the church, then kind of let others know. Now, as I say, the purpose of that process, as Jesus described it, isn't so that we go and condemn people. It is with the objective of restoring them, of winning them back. And what we find, though, is if we were the only witness, if there was no other witnesses, well, it's quite clear. We just stop there. Because otherwise it's just their word against my word or your word, and we can't do anything with that. We have to leave it to God. It's his role, as we said, to convict, not ours. It's his to deal with in his perfect wisdom. But we do find this temptation to judge character, to judge other people's character. Suppose I catch a fellow Christian um, saying a, an obvious lie. Um, it would be better if I said to them, you know, mate, what you've just said there actually is untrue. If you like highlighting the sinful behaviour that I've seen, that I've witnessed, but saying nothing about their identity as a person, their character, and of course, leaving lots of room for hope that they can change. Now, the alternative, the not so helpful way of responding, if I've seen somebody lying, would be to say, you know what, mate? You're a liar. Yeah? You see the difference? That is slating the character of that individual. It's undermining their identity. It's giving them very little, if any, hope that they can change and be different. You know, maybe even a better way would be to say to that person, you know, you know, mate, you're not a liar, so... Why don't you just tell a lie? That's clever, isn't it? You're not a liar. Actually say, no, you're, you're a child of God. This is what you're doing here is out of character. Almost the opposite. You're not, this is not your, you're not a liar. This is out of character for you. What? What's it? Yeah. So calling somebody a liar, stupid, clumsy, proud, evil, that attacks the person's character. We shouldn't do that. It leaves them hopeless because they can't instantly change their character because none of us can. It's a process. It's this maturing thing. It's this long game we're in. But pointing out someone's sinful behaviour to them is an opportunity. 
It's an opportunity for them to apologise, receive forgiveness and move on. All of us, together. There's also a real big difference, and we need to understand this, between discipline and punishment. I'm in the middle of page 91 now. Punishment is related to that Old Testament concept. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. It's looking backwards to the past. But discipline is looking forward to the future. Hebrews 12, 5-11. It tells us that God's discipline is proof that he loves us. God disciplines us because we're his sons and his daughters. That's why he does it. It's evidence that we're his children because he disciplines us. It says in that passage, if we're not disciplined by God, then we're illegitimate children of God. So God, we have to understand this, God does not punish Christians. It doesn't happen. He does not do that. All the punishment that we deserved was on Jesus. It fell on him. But at times, God does discipline us. So that we don't make the same mistake again. So that our character, our maturity develops. Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. You see, that's the benefit. It's working on our character, on our maturity. The point of, dif- um, the point of discipline is to help you become more like Jesus. That's the whole point. It's not to punish, punish you for behaving badly. And it's a subtle difference, I appreciate, but it's a fundamental one. It's worth getting it right and straight in our heads. And actually, it's wonderful that we don't have a God who punishes us. And it's wonderful that we have a God who loves us that much that he sometimes makes that hard choice of putting us through difficult times, difficult circumstances. Why? In order to prepare us in order to mould his character in our lives. That's, that's the main commodity of life, isn't it, that will bear up in eternity. So how do we respond, then, if somebody attacks my character? Say they say to me, I'm a liar, or I'm stupid, or I'm useless. What do I do then? Bottom of page 91, here we are now. Um, well, again, 1 Peter's quite useful, chapter 223. It tells us how Jesus reacted. When they hurled their insults on him... He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So now that we're alive in Christ and we're forgiven, we don't need to defend ourselves. We should not defend ourselves. If we are wrong, then we don't have a defence. And if we're right, then we don't need one. Christ is our defence. There's a story about a woman who went to see her, one of her church leaders. She had a list of two good points and a page of bad ones that she wanted to point out to him. And as she read it out, this kind of leader was saying he was really tempted just to jump in at each of the bad ones and defend himself. But, but somehow he managed to bite his lip and say nothing. And the story goes on. When she had finished the list, he then just said to her, You know, it must have taken you a lot of courage to share that list with me. What do you suggest that I do? And at that point, she just started sobbing and crying and said, it's not you, actually, it's me. And that led on to a more helpful discussion. And in the end, uh, the story goes that she was able to find a different part of church life that she could get involved in, uh, a different role, if you like, that better suited her gifting and her personality. See, those who are critical of others, 
we find, are actually either hurting themselves or they're immature. There's normally one of those two options. And if you can learn not to be defensive when, defensive when someone exposes your character defects, whether they're right or wrong, or they attack your level of performance, you have an opportunity, possibly, to turn the situation around and even actually minister to that other person. Okay, I've got two questions for you. Question one. If you were to picture Heavenly God, Father, Father God, what would he resemble? Would he resemble a headmaster, a kind of figure looking down to see if there's anything he can discipline you for? Or was he more like a smiling dad with big open arms waiting you for run, to run into them, no matter what has happened? The second question is this. Look at page 92. You'll see four words in a list there. Authority, accountability, affirmation, acceptance. Ask yourself, from which end of that list, from the top or from the bottom, did God first come to you? Was it through authority first? Was it through acceptance first and up? Now your answers might reveal a lot about how you view kind of marriage, parenting, how you view ministry as a Christian. Let me explain how it happened with us and God. Acceptance came first. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were accepted before we were even worthy of it. And then came the affirmation. Um, Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We get that affirmation that comes from the Spirit bubbling through our own spirit. I am the child of God. We get that affirmation. See, God is like that smiling dad with open arms. But the devil wants to distort that image. And he wants you to get that list back to front. But if you know God as your loving father, if you know he accepts you just as you are and loves you no matter what, then you find you can. You pour out your life to him. You can just do that. And it's the same with people. People will voluntarily submit to someone in authority who is, first of all, accepting and affirming. That's how it works. Suppose a teenager, maybe one of my girls, comes, comes home late and I say in an overbearing way, Where have you been, Hannah? And she might say, out. Okay? And then at that point I might say, uh, what were you doing? And she will say, nothing. And that'll be that. That's probably how that conversation would go. That's not Hannah at all and she doesn't stay out late and we wouldn't have that conversation, I trust. But nevertheless, that's just an example. Jesus never said it like that. He never said, now look here, mate. I'm the son of God. Get your act together. He didn't go like that, did he? he didn't, I don't read that in my Bible. He didn't start with authority. See what I mean? He is God and he does have ultimate authority, but he came in a different way. He came as a gentle shepherd. Yet this is what we find. He preached a sermon on the mount and then the crowds, we're told, were amazed at his teaching. Matthew 7. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their, their teachers of the law. So this authority that they suddenly recognised didn't come from his position. Any position he'd been given he, or assumed, but it came out of his character. And when we see people who are struggling with sin, we need to be that like that, like God. By coming alongside them giving them acceptance and love and not rejection and not 
condemnation. So, should we express our needs if they're not being met in a relationship, or should we just suffer in silence? That's our next question, page 92. Well, we need to walk in the light, and we need to be honest in our relationship. So it's important we do express our needs, but we need to be very careful to express them, express the needs, and not to express it as a criticism or as a judgment. So again, let's look at the marriage uh, situation as an example. A wife may not feel loved, and therefore she might go and say to her husband, you don't love me anymore. Do you? And he might respond, of course I do. And that will probably be roughly the end of the conversation. There's kind of nowhere to go with that. But just suppose she'd said this, I just don't feel loved right now, and I need to be. See, what she's done there, she's turned the you that she had previously, which was a judgment, into an I, which was a need. So she's expressed her need without blaming her husband or undermining or judging his character. Who knows what will happen next, but her husband now at least has an opportunity uh, to meet that need. You know, identify, oh, she has a need, right, I can look to do that, and he may be more likely to do so. A husband might not feel needed, and instead of saying, you make me feel useless, he could say, I feel so unimportant. He's changed the you, which is an accusation, to an I, a need, and he's got the message across. I think it might get received. And I think the wife might be a little bit more inclined to help and meet that need. Lastly, page 93, there's a biblical principle called we reap what we sow, and it's got some relevance here. God has placed us in community. That's what church is. It's a family. It's not a building. It's people. It's us. We are church together. We're meant to grow by relating to one another. That's how we grow. We need one another, and each one of us needs to feel loved, and needs to feel accepted, and needs to feel affirmed. So the suggestion from this session really is, well, why don't you do that then? <laughs> Give it a go. Um, call someone. Next time you see somebody, or maybe write a letter to them, say, you know, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you. I want to tell you how encouraging you are, and how much you build me up. I really appreciate you. I mean, you can do that, or you can wait for someone to do it to you. I mean, what's going to happen? <laughs> no, I encourage you, give it a go. Get started with it. Jesus did say it's more blessed to give than to receive, which does seem kind of topsy-turvy, really, but bizarrely, actually, when you do something with someone else, it does feel good, and actually you find you help yourself in the process. In Luke 6:38, he says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your laps. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In essence, if you want to, if you want somebody to love you, love somebody. If you want a friend, be a friend. That's the principle. That's the principle of sowing, uh, reaping what we sow, of getting out of life what we put into it. And learning to relate to one another is really critical, not just for the other people, but for you, for you in your personal well-being. It's important also, amazingly, in how we fulfil the commission that Jesus has given us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How does that work? Well, it's interesting, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
just before Jesus was arrested and went to the cross, he prayed, and he prayed for us, his disciples, and he prayed that we'd be one. That in our church family, in our community as Christians, with going for this thing, we would be united. And there's a reason for it. He says this in John 17, 23, so that the world may know that you, Father God, have sent me, Jesus, and, uh, and that you have loved, sorry, and I have loved them as you have loved me. So, in essence, our unity, if we can build community like this and relate to one another well, it will lead to the world knowing about Jesus. Wow, we fulfilled the commission by doing that. That is amazing. So that's really the end of that session. I trust it's been useful. A bit of a different theme, I think, one that's very practical for us. I've got three bits of homework for you before the last week. So we're kind of going for a crescendo here. Um, you will notice on page 93 there's a poem. I haven't read it out loud, but you can have a look at that. And if poems float your boat, then that one might just encourage you. It's all about becoming the person that God created you to be. So read it, reflect on it. It might be useful. Um, also, have a look at the kind of homework suggestion or the in the coming week uh, title on page 94. Just over the page there. What it's encouraging you to do, and some, there's genuine value in this, is... <coughs> Just to assess in the Holy Spirit, Lord, is there uh, anyone I need to repent um, about? Is there anyone um, I need to uh, forgive? Um, or, or sorry, repent. Let's say uh, I'm sorry uh, and ask for forgiveness for um, to other people. And actually, the encouragement is you may need to actually go and tell that person that fact. Not necessarily always, it may not even be possible, but there may be somebody like that. So just a little encouragement to look at that. And then lastly, something uh, of a questionnaire, page 102. So you might want to dog ear the corner so you don't forget this bit. Uh, page 102, there is a little survey, if you like, and there are some sentences that you have to finish off. Can I encourage you to do that? It's for the last session next week that we need to look at that. Now... Be honest, that's my only um, encouragement. And also be assured, we're not going to uh, ask you what you've written, what you've scored. We're not going to share it in the little groups. It's just between you and God. But it may be of some value as we look at that exercise in the last session. Okay. Brilliant. Well, that's it, guys. I will just end in prayer.